0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome to the house of God. What a privilege it is for us to not just be here, but to celebrate this morning. Are you rejoicing this morning? Praise the Lord. I'm sure you're going back to your own baptism some years ago. um, Last weekend, last Sunday, was actually my celebration, my anniversary, 17th anniversary of my baptism. So it's just amazing. Um, Instead of going up, though, we went down because the baptistry was uh, dug under. But uh, nevertheless, what what an amazing reminder of God's grace. Well, in the remaining time here this morning, I just want us to look at God's word. Have you ever seen the show, How It's Made? How it's made. So, it's a show that's been going on for probably the last 20 years or so. On and off, it comes back. And it gives the behind the scenes look at how stuff is made. For instance, we all know what a Band-Aid is, right? We all use it. Some use it daily, unfortunately. But do you know how it's made? You ever blown up a balloon? Yes, but do you know how a balloon is made? The the point of this show is to take everyday items and to go behind the scenes and show you the process, every stage of its production, and then present the product to you, which you use every single day. Well, this morning, we heard three amazing testimonies. Three amazing testimonies testimonies of God's grace all spoke about faith and repentance, forsaking their own sin and loving Jesus. But let me ask you this question. Do you know the process behind the change? Do you know how that was made? In other words, what you heard this morning is their experience They're coming to the Lord, them repenting, them trusting in Christ and saying, Christ, you have what I desperately need. But this morning, I want us to also look at the flip side of the coin, sort of pull back the curtain and see what is happening on the heavenly side. What did God do for them? How did they come to a place where they could look Believe, understand, and repent. So open with me to Titus chapter three. In this section here, Titus, or Paul encourages Titus and the rest of the church to be faithful to their mission in Crete. He zeroes in in chapter three on the relationship between the believer and the unbeliever. Those who are outside of our church walls. How should we relate to them? is the overall question of chapter 3. And in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3, Paul tells the church essentially four things. Number one, he says, don't lose sight of your calling in verses 1 and 2. Then he goes on and he says in verse 3, listen, don't lose sight of your past. Always remember who you were. And that's why when they were sharing their testimonies, they go back and, and they told you, here's who I was. Don't lose sight of... Your calling, don't lose sight of your past. And and in verses 4 through 7, he says, don't lose sight of your salvation. Think always, constantly, contemplate on God and what he has done for you. And finally, he ends in the latter verses of chapter 3, and he tells them, in light of all this, don't lose sight of your mission. Don't lose sight of your mission. And so we're not going to be looking at the entire passage here, but In its context, I just wanna look at this third point, don't lose sight of your salvation, verses four through seven. Remember, church, your salvation. What happened to you when you were saved? And just reading this passage, I think, if we can reduce all of these testimonies to three words. It could be a very short testimony, but a very powerful one at that. And that is this, he saved us. If you walk away with anything this morning, it is that every single one of these individuals who professed faith in Christ, they said one thing, he saved us. Look with me at Titus chapter three, verse one. Therefore, remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have been who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. As we look at verses four through seven, I I want us to consider just this main heading. And that that is this, God saved us by his grace through the actions of Jesus Christ by the agency of the Holy Spirit for eternal fellowship with him. He saved us through Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, for eternal fellowship with him. It's the summary statement of this entire sentence. In fact, verses 4 through 7 here in Titus 3, it is one complete sentence. And in it, Paul answers three questions. He asks, when did God save us? How did he save us and for what purpose did he save us? So let's look at one individually as we go through this passage. Number one, when did God save us? And I want you to to consider this. Verse four, God saved us at the appearing of his son. God saved us when at the appearing of his son. First of all, I want you to see a turning point here in this verse. In verse 3, Paul describes our past condition in no flattering terms. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, full of malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. These are no strengths and qualities you will put on your resume. These are not desirable qualities. But, verse four, but, begins with a contrast. Our desperate condition required involvement of an outside party. So God sets forth to accomplish his rescue plan. We were in a desperate position. We were in a desperate place. God initiates the rescue. God comes to save. Notice the uh, word appeared at the end of Verse four, look in your Bibles, appeared. Someone, something is becoming manifest or arriving on the scene. Something incredible is about to happen. Here's where you were. Here's where you are, verse three. Some of you are still there. But something incredible is about to happen. Who is this one who comes to save and to rescue? Well, this text here, we see that this rescue plan, this salvation, is a Trinitarian plan. Trinitarian plan. In other words, all three members of the Godhead are involved and are invested into turning sinners into saints. The lights have gone out. That's all right. Someone's been trying to mess with our party here since morning hours, so we're just going to keep going, okay? Okay. God shows up, the entire trinity shows up, three members of the Godhead to turn sinners into saints. And it starts with the father. He's the initiator. I want you to notice quickly three things about the father from verse four. But when the kindness of God, our savior, God, our savior, the father is the savior. Throughout this letter, Paul refers both to God and to Jesus Christ as the savior of mankind. You will notice in chapter one, verse three, Paul writes, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior, the father. But God is not only our savior, he is a kind savior. But when the kindness of God, kindness, it refers to God's goodness, to generosity. Whenever it refers to God, whenever it is used in the context of God, it is always used in the context of God saving us, God being kind and merciful and generous to us in salvation. He's good. He's always good. Church, may we never come To a point. May we never get over the fact and forget this truth that God is always kind. He is always good. All of God's motivations and actions, they always correspond to what is good and what is right. Notice what Paul writes to the church in Rome in in Romans 2 4, and he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Friends, it's the kindness of our God that initiated our repentance and brought us to saving faith. And this is what we're celebrating this morning. He's not only a a kind Savior, he is a loving Savior. He says this in verse for and his love for mankind appeared. The, the term that's used here is where we get our English term philanthropy from. Filio to love and anthropos, men, to love men. Today we use this term in the context of just, you know, the rich giving money to the poor. But this term refers to God showing compassion especially to those who are in desperate need who are in distress who are in pain literally love for mankind in this distress and and notice also that these two terms here they occur together and they really talk about one thing we need to consider this loving kindness of god and the kindness of God as just one complete package because both are said to have appeared and the word appeared here is a singular verb, appeared. It doesn't say they appeared, but it says it appeared. What appeared? Well, God's kindness and love towards men appeared. It's a singular concept. Furthermore, consider this term appeared. Think about when did God's kindness and love towards mankind appear? When did it appear? The, the, this term to appear, both the verb and the noun form of this verb, they are always used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' first coming or his second coming. So whatever Paul is describing here, this kindness of God and this love towards mankind, it appeared when Jesus appeared. Look what he says in 2 Timothy 1:9 and 10. Paul reminds to Timothy that God saved us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the appearing Kindness and grace of God appeared in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're in Titus 3, just look up to Titus 2 and read with me verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And then he says, looking forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in Verse 3 Then, Paul sees Jesus as the embodiment of God. He embodies the fullness, the Father's fullness, kindness, and love towards mankind. Listen, friends, Jesus Christ is God's grace, kindness, and love incarnate. When did he save us? When Jesus came, when Jesus appeared. One German theologian, he wrote of the incarnation this way. Of all times, it is the turning point. Of all love, it is the highest point. Of all worship, it is the central point. Of all salvation, it is the starting point. When were you saved? Well, you were saved when Christ appeared. This is the starting point but it would be a mistake for us to assume that this reference in verse four only refers to Christ first appearing and not to Christ's accomplishment of that salvation for each of us in specific time. So then how and and when did God save us? How did God save them? Look with me at our next point. God saved us according to his mercy. God saved us according to his mercy. Mercy, he saved us. Verse five, not but you see that contrast in verse five again. Not but, and Paul he puts the negative up front. He says, Let's just get this one out of the way, let's just get something straight. Not by works, not by works. We're not saved, friends, because of anything that that we were or ever could be apart from God's grace. We know that, but we need to be reminded of that because we are tempted to think that, man, maybe there is something good in us. Look, we do all of these nice things. We visit others, we help out, but just maybe. I I mean, I know that it wasn't only because, but maybe. No, scripture is very clear. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And then, not of works, so that you don't boast. Paul repeats the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1:30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord sinners we are rotten from head to toe there's no hope for someone rotten to produce something healthy or good is there absolutely not i mean you don't save or keep a rotten tomato on your kitchen counter and hope that it turns whole again and you can reuse it no it continues to rot and it continues to stink it's bad there's no hope and isn't this a picture of us? We have no righteous works. If we had, then there wouldn't be need for us to be saved. Why? Because we can produce righteousness. So Paul says we are saved not by our works because all of our works, as Isaiah 64 says, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, filthy garments. It's like for those of you who change oil in your own car, you're just about ready to, to finish and you pick up the, the oily rag and, and you say, I'm gonna clean up myself. And you use this dirty rag that you just wiped the bottom of the engine and you're starting to clean up yourself. That's what it looks like for us to, to do righteous deeds, for us to you know, clean up before the Lord. It's totally counterintuitive. It only gets uglier and uglier. So what is the solution? But, verse five, But, this is amazing. Friends, we are saved not by our works, but, huge contrast here, on the basis, according to his mercy. God showed them mercy. God shows us mercy. to, To be merciful to someone means that you don't give them what they deserve. Each of us, deserve immediate and eternal punishment but god gives grace. Ephesians 2:4 says but god being rich in mercy abounding in mercy abundance a full storehouse of mercy he gives it to us. And you know god is not a stingy giver he's rich and he's not stingy. He gives and he gives and he gives over and over and over again. He pours out his mercy in his beloved. God displays his mercy and given us new life. How? Paul goes on and he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. By washing and renewing us by the Spirit, he explains now the manner in which Our salvation behind the scenes is accomplished by washing and renewing. Notice the involvement now of the third person, the Holy Spirit. We see the Father's kindness and love that's realized in the Son. And now the Spirit is sent to apply the Son's work in the life of believers. So what does he do for us? The Spirit washes us. The Spirit washes us, verse 5 and he renews us. Elsewhere in John chapter three, we are told of the spirit's regenerating work. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, you must be born again. And here in Titus three, different terms now are used to offer a metaphor for this cleansing and conversion that takes place. The spirit both cleanses, believers through regeneration and fills them by renewing, forming them into this one new entity. You're new now in Christ. And this is what they were testifying. I am different now. Why? Because the spirit applied the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And he changed me. He renewed me. He transformed me. I am a different person now than I was before. So these two terms, washing and renewing, they're the two sides of the same coin. The Holy Spirit gives life, new beginning, new birth. So that Paul can say in Second Timothy 5, or 2 Corinthians, rather 5:17, he says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. He's a new creation. He renews us also. He renews us. At conversion, we are cleansed and recreated. Listen, we we are not to think of this term washing of regeneration as referring to water baptism. This is something that took place instantly at one time at the moment of your salvation, or renewing by the Spirit as as referring to something that we call progressive sanctification. This is not progressive sanctification here in chapter 5. Paul says here that in the context of Titus 3, 4 through 7, the these two terms here, they must be um, interpreted in light of just one single event. It's a once for all renewal because the salvation that he describes here in this chapter is seen as once for all action, something that's done, something that's complete, it's sealed. And that's why these friends, they can testify and, and they say, you know what, what God had started, he will complete. And, and now I am sealed by the spirit. My salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. So we are positionally sanctified and renewed, which by implication has this ongoing effect in our lives. We are being renewed as a, as a, a result of prior renewal. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 3.10, that our new self is being renewed, same exact term that's used here, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So God saves us not according to our works, but according to his mercy, and his mercy is seen in him pouring out his spirit, and the spirit regenerates us. But look what he says here. He doesn't stop in verse six, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, how is God's kindness and love and mercy possible? How is Spirit's work possible? It's only because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ came into the world so that the world might be saved through him. We willingly come and live a, or he, rather, willingly came and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And as we've been looking at for the past number of months in the Sermon on the Mount, he alone fulfilled the requirement of the entire law. And then he died. He was slain for sinners. But, and here's the, another glorious but, he did not remain in the grave. He resurrected so that we may be justified and he is forever alive. And so we read something like 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. I mean, does that not blow your mind, Christian? He did it. You couldn't, you wouldn't, he did it. And the spirit comes in and applies it to your life. He births us to life. Notice also that we're not only regenerated, but we're also justified, verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, we are justified by his Grace, regeneration, which is new birth, and justification are the two parallel works of God in our lives. And we could probably do a whole series of sermons on this passage because some of the most dearest doctrines are just rooted in this text here. And we can be plumbing the depths of this passage forever. Regeneration and justification. What does it mean to be justified? Does it mean that God looks at you and he sees something good in you and says, I'm going to justify him because he tried? I'm going to justify because I see, you know, a little bit of desire in this guy to please me. No, to be justified means that God declares you righteous through a foreign righteousness. It doesn't belong to you. It's someone else's righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been credited to you and you are justified by faith. Someone's credit, someone's balance is applied to you. This is incredible. If you've been overdrafting your entire life and you've been getting penalized every single time and you're crying out and you're trying to find a job and you're trying to look for a solution, how can I ever get into that positive place? And then someone comes along and he switches your account numbers so that what is true of Jesus Christ and everything that he had earned and his righteousness that he had accumulated here living wholly, perfectly, righteously before the Father is now credited to you. It's like it's yours. Isn't that amazing? That's what happens. We are justified by his grace, we are given something we do not deserve. Not only does God withhold something that we do deserve by being merciful to us, he grants us and he gives us something we have no claim on whatsoever. The righteousness of his son. When does it all take place? This justification and redemption. Well, Paul says it takes place when it pleases him, when it pleases him. Look what he says in Galatians chapter one, verse 15 and 16. He says, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, he did, and I did not refuse. That's just Tim's parallel. When it pleased God to save me, he did, and I didn't refuse. I didn't talk back to God. You know some of you here may be wondering, you know, I wish, maybe saying something like, "You know, "I wish I was saved at 15." or "I wish I was saved at 17." right? I was saved at 30, or I was saved at 50." man, all this time wasted. But listen, the scripture says, "The Lord led you a certain way and He saved you when it pleased him when it pleased him. Start. Worshiping Christ now, continue on now. It pleased him and therefore he saved you. And he saved you according to his mercy. Notice the recurring theme here. We are mere recipients. We only receive here. We don't do anything in these verses. God does it all. All we do is we're beggars before the Lord and, and we're pleading and we're just getting. What are we getting? Kindness and love and mercy, and grace, and regeneration, and justification. We're just getting because it is richly poured out on us. Now, finally, why are we saved? For what purpose? And I want us to look at the end of verse seven, which brings us to our third point. God saved us for eternal fellowship. God saved us for eternal fellowship. This is the goal that being justified by His grace, we become heirs. Salvation by God through Jesus Christ, the Lord, by the regenerating work of the Spirit, has eternal benefits, friends. Salvation means adoption. Here's another great biblical doctrine adoption means that you were brought into God's family and now. You have a new title, you have a new identity. You are now a child of God. And think about this, when you're adopted into the family, you now have the legal name of that family. And what does that mean for you? You are now a legal heir. You are now a legal, rightful heir. To you belongs the inheritance. Like at one time you were outside of this family, and now Jesus, the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit are involved in bringing you into the family so that now you can claim inheritance. Romans 8, 6, 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, what does it mean to be an heir? Listen, this is amazing, by being an heir of Christ, to you belongs all of his inheritance, everything. Inheritance. I'll just read you some some verses that are mind blowing. Uh, Ephesians 1:11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. Colossians 1:12. Given thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Hebrews. 915, for this reason he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And look at 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy and grace has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. And look how he describes this inheritance. It is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. God's inheritance. As God's nominated heirs, we live with hopeful expectation that one day we will receive our full inheritance in heaven, namely eternal life, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs heirs according to the hope of eternal life, which is unclouded, unhindered, undisturbed fellowship with Jesus. And although today we're sitting here Christians and we have this foretaste of eternal life, the fullness of such life, our eternal fellowship with Christ is yet to come. It is something that we look forward to, but we all look forward to with hope. And all of this, friends, because he saved us. Friends, in in conclusion, I, I don't know what brought you here this morning Maybe you came to congratulate your friend who who was baptized. Maybe you came here because you're heading to lunch right after and you just didn't want to be late there. That's fine. Praise the Lord, you're here. Maybe you came here because you always come. That's just what you do. Sunday morning, you show up to church. And I'm glad you're here. God brought you here. So I'm going to ask you, friend, have you done what these friends did, repented of your sins and trusted in in Christ's sacrifice? Listen, don't be deceived. A day of reckoning is coming. And if you have not trusted Christ alone, you will not be part of this great celebration. You have no heavenly inheritance. You have nothing to look forward to your only expectation is eternal separation from God. We can't play games. We're not here as a church to entertain one another. We're here to worship God, who saved us according to his mercy. And listen, you can too, you can too. The good news is that you can turn to Christ and repent of your sins today. You can know this savior just like they do. Cry out to him today, and he will most definitely save you. Now, listen, friends, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ alone, then then you can say, with all the redeemed, he saved me. He saved me. Not according to your deeds, but according to his great mercy. Father, we are so thankful to you. We bow down at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are humbled by the gospel. We are humbled by your love and kindness to us in Christ. You did not allow us to perish. You did not allow us to go all the way through to to taste your wrath. You are kind God. And you're kind not only to us, but you're kind to those who are in this room, still kicking against you, still thinking there's other way, or not really caring at all like we heard one testimony, just simply did not care. Oh, Lord, help them to care. Bring them to a place where they could care, where they could understand, where they can be under this sense of urgency to trust Jesus because time is running out. And help us to be faithful to reflect on the gospel daily, to know that even though we believed you gave us faith, you've turned us around, and we are saved because you saved us. Amen.